Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We begin, as is now traditional, with the Stack Waddy game. Which of these three group names in a certain category is made up? Okay, the category is Southern Boogie Bands. Southern Boogie Bands. You with that? Right, yeah. Let me have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Wet Willy, Nashville Pussy, or the Confederates? Wet Willy, Nashville Pussy... Or the Confederates. Well, I'm going to go straight in and say that Wet Willie is real. I'm absolutely convinced they're real. I can remember, they, I'm sure they were on Capricorn Records. I can remember Bob Harris playing them. And they might even have been at that Capricorn Records um, uh, party that was that was televised by Old Grey Whistle Test, where President Carter I think, was I think they probably and, were, uh, yes. I think they were. So Wet Willie, I'm absolutely sure, are real. I suspect, actually... Don't correct me if I'm wrong at the moment, but I suspect the Nashville pussy is also real. I don't know why. It just sounds like good old boys, bearded nutters, kegs of ale, um, you know, uh, beef burgers, a hog in the ground, etc. And I'm suggesting that the Confederates is the made up one because Confederate, the Confederate flag was very much a kind of um, symbol of Southern rock, wasn't it? And Southern boogie. Well, so I'm going to... They didn't oh, like to right? associate themselves with it. You are absolutely correct, yes. The Confederates is a made-up name of a southern boogie band. The other two are real. Wet Willie and Nashville Pussy existed and still exist in the latter case. OK, over to you. What's your category? All right, well, I've gone for folk rock, British folk rock, OK? And I've got three. Folk rock, OK. Folk okay. rock, and they are Far From The Madding Crowd, Jack the Lad... And Hedgehog Pie. Far from the main crowd, Jack the Lad and Hedgehog Pie. Three British folk rock bands 
Jack the Lad was certainly real because they were a spin-off from Linda's Farm, weren't they? Uh, I think they were. Uh, two members yeah, of right. Linda's you're Farm right. went off and formed they Jack were the Lad. They were in 1973. Uh, and the third one was Hedgehog Pie. Wow. Hedgehog Pie? Gosh. I don't believe there's a far from the madding crowd, but I think there probably is a hedgehog pie. You're absolutely on. spot on. We've, we've rumbled each other. No, there was a hedgehog pie, and they existed in 1971, and they were very much real. Far from the madding crowd, I'm afraid to say, completely fictitious. So we've done all right, haven't we? We've done all right. We've done all right. But it's a game people can play amongst themselves, and so we're, you know, we're, we're looking for nominations. for You know, if you've got a suggestion, if you've got a three and a category... Send it to us. Just go, you know, uh, go via the website and and send it to us, and uh, under plain cover, and we'll we'll try and sneak it in. So this is the word podcast, and uh, what have we been thinking about this week? Well, we've been thinking about lots of we've been doing lots of word in your attic recordings. If you haven't caught up with those already, they're on YouTube uh, because they are they are actual audio visual experiences, aren't they, Mark? They are. They've been uh, extremely good. We've been doing virtually one a day, actually, and they've been brilliant. Old pals digging up stuff from the attic that they've uh, rediscovered during lockdown and uh, telling us all sorts of interesting things. They're they're fantastic. We've had this week, we've had Pete Perfides, we've had Murray Wilson, we just recorded one this morning with Paul Denoye, and there'll be more on 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 their way soon. And uh, we've very much enjoyed um, talking to those people in those circumstances, and seeing that they've got just as much clutter in their attics as we do. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about Roger Waters, Mark. You're our Pink Floyd oh, correspondent. Yes. You keep up with this. There was some to-do on social media in the last week, instigated by Roger Waters. Explain for the benefit of anybody. Well, Roger Waters, I mean, anybody who's been following this, Roger Waters, there is this... <laughs> absurd ongoing war in the Pink Floyd. I mean, this has been rumbling on since whatever it is, Dark Side of the Moon, really. Roger Waters has just posted a five-minute film of him looking wonderfully unshaven and windswept, pointing out that a version of Mother, the song from the wall, that he recorded with his lockdown band is not available on the Pink Floyd website, which is, according to him, has 30 30 million subscribers. And he claims to have been banned by David Gilmour from this website. Now... (laughs) Whether this is true or not, I mean, we don't really know, do we? He says David thinks he owns the Pink Floyd. I am irrelevant. Um, he points out that Polly Sampson, who is uh, David's wife, is, is constantly on the Pink Floyd website uh, promoting her oh, book. Yes. And that the Von Trapps are there reading us excerpts from their novels, which I assume is a slightly low dig at the sprawling Gilmore Sampson clan. <laughs> but I mean, this has been going. I know, I know, I know. But this has been going on forever. I mean, you know, Rick Wright was fired, wasn't he, during the making of The Wall? Waters left in 85 and sued the other three when they toured in 1987 to stop them using the brand name. And Lost. And then he gave an interview in 2013 where he, we, he he did admit he was right. He said, I was wrong to sue them. You know, he said, of course I was. Who cares? Well, the answer to that is, I think Roger Waters cares. I think he yeah, cares God. very, very deeply, actually. And, you know, in a part of me, I've got to be honest, I don't I don't really blame him. How he goes about these things is, is another question, but I don't really blame him because Waters must want to reform the Pink Floyd, as he still has a band that plays Pink Floyd songs, as does Nick Mason, who has his Source of Secrets project. And um, I feel sorry for the both of them, really. I mean, Waters, this is the band whose peak he masterminded. You know, mostly his songs, and it must be heartbreaking to feel kind of locked out of it. And I feel sorry for Gilmore, because he's the guy who, you know, took the risk and the responsibility of carrying on if he hadn't, would 
of the back catalogue still be selling, etc. Would the concept of Pink Floyd be dead in a ditch? We don't know. But Waters must look aggressive and relentlessly bitter to Gilmore. And Gilmore must look, you know, devious and, 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 uh, and chillingly controlling to Waters. So, I mean, it, I, the whole thing is slightly undignified. And the other interesting thing, David, I think, is that in the old days, this used to happen in the music papers, didn't it? This is this it. This would be, be this a spat that would be, this would be talked about in the music papers. You know, Waters would have a letter, a formal letter in the Melody Maker. And uh, now, instead, you get this, this slightly eccentric and unsettling uh, windswept personal assault, you know, they where it looks look, like the Ancient Mariner, on the, glo- they uh, the globally, like, globally um, available film. They all look like hostage videos, those kind of things. You know what I mean? When you, when a rock star holds up a, a, an iPhone in front of them and makes it an appeal to camera, they look faintly deranged. They just can't they help do. looking faintly deranged. You know, you think this person has kind of lost their sense of proportion. Whereas you're so right what you say that the, traditionally these kind of these battles have always gone on in in, in rock groups. But they've tended to be conducted via the pages of the music press, not even in direct letters, but generally just in stuff said in interviews. You know, finally, while talking about his new album, he couldn't resist telling me this about his former colleagues or whatever. And it was always moderated by the journalists somehow. You know what I mean? Whereas when you do it direct to camera, you just think, and you look a bit mad. And also, as as you point out, what possible outcome does he think this is going to have? <laughs> does he think Dave Gilmore is going to look at this and get on the phone? And, all right, all right, go, you know, absolutely, so, Roger, you're right. Roger, Mate, I was I'm so sorry. wrong. I was Especially so wrong. after he's I pointed out about my wife. My God, as I think I've, I've said, talked... we've talked about this before on the on the podcast. That 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 brilliant book about Tom Petty by Warren Zanes, where he spends a lot of time with Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers. And uh, and two of the heartbreakers eventually on the tour bus. One of them says to the other, after years of bubbling enmity, one of them says to you, "And let me tell you, I don't like your wife." And you think, "My God, yeah, there there's is no coming no back from coming that. Back from this. Absolutely there is none. No, there is not no, enough oil to be poured which, on troubled waters to ever get that back." You know, which God, spinal tap even, points up brilliantly, doesn't it? The yeah. bit of spinal tap where suddenly, where you know, uh, you know, St. Hubbins's girlfriend starts to manage the group, and uh, <laughs> you know, and the Christopher Guest character has a real crack at her and says, "You know, it's just not working." Anything that is just—it's irresolvable, isn't it? You can't. Those are personal. Terms. But I don't know what because you know, Waters does tend to use these slightly kind of uh, slightly passive-aggressive uh, uh, low yeah, blows definitely. in these things. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really. Really do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do sympathise with him. I think. Yeah, I do. I do. I I I sympathise with both of them. I I think it's a really tough situation. Yeah, it's a really tough situation. But let me tell you, the one thing that won't solve it is this. You know, because it's a classic case of again. We've talked about this hundreds of times on podcasts and in word of your ears, evenings, and so forth. We say, I, I say it to the point of tedium. The thing about rock bands is they have deeply buried, you know, resentments uh, and issues between them, which they literally never talk about. Not ever. Do they ever say, I'll tell you what, you know, like a company would go on a, an annual off-site to some country hotel and there'd be a bit yeah. of a truth-telling session, you know what I mean? Well, sales have got it in for marketing or something, you know. Rock groups don't do this at all. 
they just they just it bury it all, and then it comes out in that kind of form. Or somebody writes a book, or or posts a clip on YouTube. It's no good. It won't work. No, it's absolutely true. And 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 they're never mentioned. And these people who are literally spending all day on the same tour bus. And, yeah. and by never mentioning these, these things, they just build up and build up and build up until eventually even if they, they explode. You know, you know, the Ramones is the classic example, isn't it? Well, who stole whose girlfriend? Can you remember? I can't remember. Is it Joey what? stole Johnny's girlfriend? Uh, uh, there was, was terrible bits of this. And they literally did not speak for about 15 years. Tra- married together kind of professionally, but travelling to gigs, you know, sound checking all that without any kind of conversation. Can you imagine how ghastly it must have been? Oh, so, it's, 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 as, as you say, would have been, you know, it's another thing that makes you nostalgic for the glory days of the music press, if anything, if anything does. Uh, but talking to the music press, we generally talk about yesterday's papers a little bit on this podcast. And there's more reason than usual to talk about that this week, which is that they, the, the story in the trade press is that Q magazine is, um, you know, the, the company that, that publishes at Bauer. Uh, have said it's, it's pretty much kind of unworkable in the current environment, and, uh, and that this, along with another bunch of titles, they'll will either go online only or close altogether or be sold. Or I I don't know, I don't I don't pretend to know. But obviously, you know, Mark and I go back a little bit with uh, with Q, and I've actually got the first issue of Q in front of me. Have you? I've got literally it just I've just got it down from the shelf and I'm having so a look at it. Oh I found the sales of this note in here with the sales figures. How incredible. Oh wow, go on, really. That is amazing. Oh, from Philip Thorndike to all of us. Here we are, October nineteen eighty six. This is the audit of the first issue of Q. And the audit was thirty nine thousand and twenty copies was what sold. From a wow. print figure of sixty nine thousand. That's pretty good, my God. Budgeted level of sales, 43,000. So actually it was below budget. But that's pretty good, isn't it? How well, that was probably an early audit. As a letter anyway, of congratulations from the managing director, go, Tom Maloney. That's amazing because, yeah, well, I've got, it's October 1986. It's £1.10. We seemed a lot of money at the time. And uh, and I was, I was thinking about this um, the other day in the light of this news that, you know, it was not an easy thing to get launch queue because the the kind of pre-launch research indicated it might sell thirty five thousand or something like that. And but the worry was that uh, the company felt that um, that the advertising market was a weekly market and was all going going to go in the enemy and mail to make it and you'd never get any ads. But of course, it sold more than thirty five thousand and it grew and grew and grew until. Turn of the turn of the millennium. I think it was two hundred thousand or something like that, wasn't it? Um, yeah, the most it sold, I think, was two hundred eighty nine thousand with a copy of REM on the cover. Although Dan, I noticed that Danny, Danny Kelly did tweet something the other day about the Terence Trent Derby issue selling five hundred thousand or whatever. Which I think it's unlikely. I don't think it ever sold more than two hundred eighty nine. But two hundred eighty nine thousand for a magazine I that think, was thick as a brick with advertising because it was below advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. I, and the thing I was thinking about it was that you know the, there's a lot you know there's a lot of stuff about what a shame it is and so forth and you know obviously anything like this is a great shame for anybody who works on it and uh, you know and these are terribly tough times you know made tougher by obviously by the made dramatically tougher by you know what's gone gone on in the last couple of months um, but the thing it made me think is that you know during that time when it was going up and up and up and up and up. 
you know, it was going up because the market was just growing all the time, you know. And then there were more people going into more news agents all the time thinking, what shall I buy? And they were very often bought more than one, you know. And um, and so, you know, what I, what I, this, here's what I learned in, the, in many years in the magazine business, Mark. Shall Go I on. tell you? I, I probably yeah, bought yeah, you. Yeah, this. yeah, I would this have heard the before, one, but tell me again. <laughs> this is the one, the one thing I've learned. You're not a genius when it's all going your way, and you're not a dunderhead when it's not going your way. It simply means... It's so true. If the market's growing, you look like a genius. If the market's not growing, nothing you do will make any difference at all. And 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 you know, the, and the air is thick at the moment with people saying, "Oh, well, if they'd only done a bit more of this and a bit less of that, and they'd had more oases or less oases, or I don't know what, it would have made a difference." I don't think it would at all. No, no, because- I don't think t- I couldn't agree more because the fundamental thing about Q. Was, was that, you know, basically, in a nutshell, CDs had just been invented. And therefore, tons and tons of records were being reissued on CD and tons of new records were, the whole market was booming, were coming out on CD. But CDs were 16 quid. You remember? I mean, 16 quid, what is yeah. that nowadays? About 50 pounds. So here was a magazine that interviewed, that reviewed rather, over 100 new CDs, which gave you a chance of not making the fatal error of, of wasting 16 pounds on buying one. So that was the main driving force behind the entire thing. And of course, those situations don't last forever. All magazines define, all pop culture magazines define a particular era. Smash Hits lasted, what, 28 years? The Face lasted 24 years. Nova, 10 years. Well, Q Magazine, if it is over, which I'd be terribly sad to hear if it was, it was the case, but if it was, it would have had 30. 34 years in the saddle, which is a fantastic innings. It you know, is. It's not, it's not its fault. It's the circumstances. You know, you're there for a particular reason. If those reasons disappear, then it's very hard to get people to buy you. And you're right. You know, you can work really, really hard at improving magazines. It could be bad. Magazines on the way down are often much better than magazines on the way up because people are putting every effort into being creative and clever and original. And, um, oh, it's impossible. It's not making any difference at all. And, I'm just uh, looking at the and, cover of this. It's so funny. Oh, go on. Yeah, go on. No, if you want to know about the magazine business, when this bloody war is over, just go and see if you can find a magazine shop for a start. But, you know, if you found one, just go and stand there for an hour. Just go and watch. Just go and watch whether people are buying or not. And they're probably not. They're probably not buying newspapers either. You know, they're coming in there buying chocolate. (laughs) It's, It's a very different world. If you'd gone there in the early 90s, there would have been a ton of people coming in absolutely all the time who would have felt that they couldn't possibly get on a tube train without something to read. They're not like that anymore. The world has shifted. You have to find very, very different ways if you're going to sell print magazines to them at all. And some people are managing to do it. You know, people like The Spectator and The Oldie and Private Eye and those kind of, those kind of titles, they're probably doing quite well. But if you're going to find a way, you've got to do it in a very different way. It's not going to be done the way we did it back in the 80s or, or the 90s or whatever, because that's simply not going to work because the kind of public curiosity is not there in the same way. No, not remotely. God, I'm just looking through some of these old issues. I've got them above, the, above my uh, above my desk here, you know. And I've forgotten, you know, all those, those cover lines. They're so brilliant. Because the, do you remember at the time, the enemy it was so cruel and so vicious and so damning. And we had this kind of smash hits policy of fondly sending everybody up. So you had cover lines like, oops, wrong planet, R-E-M. 
Death, Drugs and Despair, The Lighter Side of Lou Reed. There's <laughs> a, a Morrissey one. This is one of Danny Kelly's, I think. There's a Morrissey cover line, which was, Yes, I am pregnant. Mr Chuckle Trousers on Zips's lip. I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> Mr Chuckle Trousers. I know. Everybody was just lightly sent up, weren't they? I'm looking at this front cover, and of course, there's some great cover lines. This is what I think you wrote this one. Cocaine, Up and Down with the Devil's Dandruff. Superb. No, I think it was Paul Denoyer, actually. I think it was Paul Denoyer. Maybe he wrote that. It's very, very funny. Oh, God. And you interviewed Dylan in this, too. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Oh, God, God. Yes, yes, yes. I still wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that. <laughs> so there we are. You know, it's very uh, it's very sad for anybody who's involved. Um, but, you know, I, the, only, the other thing I'd say is if anybody out there has got a few quid and a load of energy uh, and feels like dedicating the next 10 years of their life to it, I'm pretty damn sure that if you went along to the publisher and said, I'll take it off your hands, they'd probably let you have it. Because, you know, the, the things are really, really tough nowadays. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people in every area going around picking up what I believe they call distressed assets. And this is no exception. And the other thing I would say is there's a load of stuff on social media where people are having a go at Q magazine for always having the same people on the cover. Noel and Liam and all that, you know. And I think <laughs> they have to realise that this is, uh. this is real life. You know, this is real life. You know, there are certain acts that sell magazines and you have to put them on the front in order to sell them to get people to read about the other acts that you might want to interest them in. Well, it's more... To, I mean, it's more the, thing, the thing that's interesting, the thing that re the difference is... That was always the case, that you had some acts who were more commercial than others. And so if you go back, you know, this applies over a long period of time, that if you know if you put the Stones or the Beatles or Oasis or R.E.M. on the cover of magazines, they all sold slightly more than the average you know, cover with, I don't know, Mick Hucknall on the cover or That's right. just, whoever. whoever. Yeah. The, difference is now, the difference is nowadays... If you don't have anybody from that small pantheon of acceptable people, it drops off a cliff. You know, literally nobody buys it. And so it's, it, it's not a slow slope. It's, it's a cliff and beyond, beyond, below which is death. You know, that's why you know, these, these magazines are published defensively because there's no point being publishing publishing them aggressively because it doesn't get you anywhere at all. That's what they've learned. It's so true. I mean, we did you know, the word. I remember we had the Beatles, we had Floyd, Kate Bush was another absolute staple that always sold. Keith Richards, Joni Mitchell, David Bowie, Amy Amy Winehouse, Noel Gallagher. You had to go for a certain small kind of a, um, a collection of of really commercial tent poles to hold up the otherwise sagging canvas of the rest of your magazine. Yeah, and that's just yeah. live, isn't it? People have to appreciate that. But yes, it's very if you wanted tough. to buy Q magazine, I'm sure it would be available. And uh, but I'm so sad to hear that it's uh, that it's having uh, difficulties. What a fantastic publication! What a brilliant run it's had. God bless it. This is a word lockdown special. Call it herd immunity. So, Dave. Another little game. I was discovering of various things the other day that had been written about what were actually went on to be enormously famous acts um, by journalists very, very early on, often right at the beginning of their career. And um, and you have to... I'm going to read a couple of these to you. You've got to guess who they are. Ooh. So this is... I'm not going to tell you what date this is, uh, but I'm going to tell you that it's Rolling Stone magazine. 
and I'm gonna. I, actually, you will, there are clues in this where you'll probably get it. But what is what is the album and the band that's being talked about here? The album has nothing to do with spiritualism. The uh, the review says the occult or anything much except stiff recitations of cliches that sound like the musicians learnt them out of a book, grinding on and on with dogged persistence. Most of the album being filled with plodding bass lines over which the lead guitar dribbles wooden claptonisms. That's a hint. They even have discord jams with bass and guitar reading like velocitized speed freaks all over each other's musical perimeters, yet never quite finding sync. They're just like cream, but worse. So, what mm. album? What Come album has been? I can give you a date if it'll help. I Go on, give a me date. a date. 1970, that was written. 1970. Uh, talking about an album that has nothing to do with spiritualism or the occult. Is it Black Sabbath? It is! It's Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Very, very good by Lester Banks. Can you imagine that? They're like cream, but worse. <laughs> I, I, I have to say I was slightly surprised because I would have, I would have thought Lester Banks would have kind of embraced the, um, the kind of essential absurdity of Black Sabbath. It would have. The, I can remember. You know, it's really funny. This I can remember this because I went. I went to college in 1968. In late 1968. And yeah. uh, and so the following year, you know, loads of people joined in 1969. And I was in a hall of residence, and you, you, you turned up in 1968 with your records, which were whatever, I don't know, John Wesley Harding, Cream, Abbey Road, I don't know. And then in 1969, the, the new intake turned up. I remember hearing the music coming from their rooms. And I remember one of them turned up with the first, first Black Sabbath record, <laughs> which was the opening track, which is, you know, is, is a sort of thing that you, you're either really impressed with or you think it's hilariously funny. That's and right, I thought it was hilariously it was funny. And, uh, ridiculous. And yeah. I thought, I thought there's a real generation gap here. I couldn't possibly take Black Sabbath seriously because the only way to I take Black so. Sabbath seriously was was to kind of, Understand the truth, which was they were in the in the, in the tradition of the trogs, rather than the tradition of uh, of cream. They weren't like cream at all. You know what I mean? They were well, they were a like brutal cream. brutal simplicity is what they were about. You know, and uh, and so I'm surprised that Lester Bangs of all people didn't recognise that. But it's a good game. It's a good game. Very good. It's good. I'll give I'm you good. a I'll give you a couple more if you want. I've got a couple more. Go I, I thought it was because cream. He obviously thinks are absolutely appalling. So to be like yeah, yeah, worse is, is, is the lowest possible. Uh, okay, who 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 was this? Um, I'll give you the date later. He has no discernible singing ability. His speciality is rhythm songs, which he renders in an undistinguished whine. His phrasing, if it can be called that, consists of the stereotype variations that, variations that go with a beginner's uh, aria in a bathroom. For the ear, he is an unutterable bore. There's not much in the way wow. of clues there, actually. So that's the New York Times. It's the New York Times, and it's in early. It's in early 1956. So uh, well, it's got to be Elvis Presley. Like, it is Elvis. It's Elvis. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's a pretty outrageous <laughs> thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Variations. But that, that's just the but, old buffers having a go, isn't it? Beginners are really, in the bathroom. It's really interesting if the New York Times nowadays were to write about any kind of controversial coming new musical talent. Now, Ben, to how extreme they were and how unfamiliar the tradition they came from was, 
you would always sense in the review that the New York Times were hedging their bets just in case this act turns out to be huge. Yeah. And, you know, because so, the New York Times any, cannot afford to fall out with whoever's big in pop music nowadays because not that it matters really, but they feel that they can't afford to fall out. Whereas in those days, they didn't care at all. They, were they, didn't care because they the, never imagined that they need this person. They never no. imagined that Elvis Presley was ever going to be someone of interest to their readers and, no. uh, you know, might no. be in like cover or anything like that. It's fantastic, no, it's isn't it? Okay, I'm going to give game. you one more. Good you'll game. know this one because there's, there's, there's one more. This is a very famous one, so you'll know this. But this was The Enemy, uh, and it was in 1976, and it said, uh, this group are the kind of garage band who should be returned to the garage immediately, preferably with the engine running which would undoubtedly can... be more of a loss to their friends and family than to either rock or roll. <laughs> you remember that, I think I'm, remember I think that? I can remember. I can remember who the review was about and also who wrote it, I think. Yeah, go Was on. it written by Charles Charles Murray? It was. Wasn't it written about... <laughs> it was written about The Clash. It was, it was. It was That's written about it. The Clash. Charles Charles Murray, and only say, minutes later... That, we, then described, he said, that uh, talking about someone else, he said, and all the unpleasant aspects of David Bowie and Main Man era are, are obvious on this record. He said, but these days I'm past the stage of admiring people desperate to dazzle and bemuse, and I wish you were past the stage of trying those tricks yourself. And that's him talking about Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. It's fantastic, isn't it? I love it. Does he, again, does he wake up and think, I made a terrible error there, with the clash particularly? Unbelievable. This is a lockdown special from The Word. You ain't going nowhere. Can you hear one? Can you hear that? Can you hear that? Do you know what Again? that noise is? Do you know what that noise is? It's it's a gadget from the past. It's some clunky and <laughs> analogue gadget. Is it? I don't know. What is it? It is. It is me pressing the buttons of a Sony Walkman. An actual, not quite original Sony Walkman, but probably not that far off it. It's a Walkman 12. And so, what is the, what's the anniversary? It, the Walkman the, was oh, launched. This when? is true. The Walkman was launched in June 1980. So it's the 40th anniversary of the Walkman first arriving. And I can remember, and we should talk about what a revolutionary moment that was. But I, I think Absolutely. I can still remember you coming back from an interview with Stuart Copeland of the police. I did. And he'd just come back from Japan and he had a Sony Walkman and he he demonstrated this to you. And you were absolutely mesmerised by it, blown away. It was the most genuinely transformational bit of kit because you thought, my God, all that noise comes from, you know, comes from this tiny little box. What I think I didn't suspect, and I don't think anybody did at the time, was how quickly they would become ubiquitous. Because at first it was felt, oh, that's a very groovy thing for a rock band to bring back from Japan. But, you know, how much does it cost? Oh, 150 quid or 200, I don't know what they were. Oh, that will never be taken up by the mass of the public. You know, next thing you'll be telling me that in the future, the mass of the public will have mobile telephones. You know, <laughs> but, you know, they're clearly never going to, they're never going to buy that. And of course, within about a year, Every single Smash Hits reader, it seemed, had one, and uh, and music had been turned at a stroke. It had from something you listened to in your home to something you listened to outside. And I do think, sorry, I've bored for Britain on the subject of this in my 
In my best-selling book, A Fabulous Creation, which is about the era of the LP, you know, which I say ends with the arrival of the Sony Walkman. No, you're absolutely right. An LP, if you remember the days of an LP, you listened to it tethered to it because it was it was fixed in your living room. Yeah, it was in your bedroom or your living room. Yeah, exactly. So you sat in a chair... And you listened to it, and you didn't leave the you didn't leave the room after it had been put on. You know, you wouldn't have left it playing anything like that. Suddenly, this is absolutely transformational because, interestingly, it wasn't invented. The original concept wasn't invented by Sony. It was invented by a Swiss, I think, about ten years earlier, who worked out a way of doing it to go skiing in the Swiss mountains while listening to music. He was the person who initially detected what it was that was so exciting about it, was that you were outside, and so it was enhancing your experience, and subliminally, it was making you think you're in a film. And I think that's, that's still right. a huge, huge part that's, that's of the appeal of mobile music right. now. No. <laughs> yeah, because it's a soundtrack. It, it's a soundtrack, isn't it? Because I remember that so vividly that you could suddenly listen to music on the tube or in an aeroplane or walking, stuff we take for granted now. Walking I mean, walking is a huge thing. Was the huge thing. It's if incredible. you look at all if you look at all the ads, all the early ads for the Sony Walkman and all, all its numerous, you know, competitors. Uh, what do they all feature? They all feature somebody roller skating. Roller because, skating. <laughs> you know, Cliff Richard, Wired for Sound. Do you remember that video? Yeah. Where he, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. He, you know, everybody's video in those days, I think, I think Olivia Newton-John, was it physical? Was that? I think she wears a Walkman in That's that. That's right, she did. It was the idea of being able to you know, have any kind of physical activity with those telltale little headphones wires coming down from it was suddenly a massively exciting lifestyle enhancement that i think made a lot of people who would previously have thought of the idea of going in the other room and listening to dark side of the moon or god knows what as a slightly odd thing suddenly think no listen to music is not an odd thing it's a brilliant Kind of sexy outdoors. Yeah, thing. completely. Because it's a it's a soundtrack to an activity, isn't it? And also, uh, and also, end of the uh, end of the record that you could then make compilation tapes with your all, all your own, um, you know, with your own tracks. So it, it broke down the, the the concept of the album. But the other thing I think was interesting is it, it made it changed the way you listen to music because it didn't become it became a kind of secondary thing. If you're at home listening to music in you know in your bedroom on a, on a, on a stereo. It's kind of front of mind. You're you're you're, you're concentrating on what's yeah. going on, yeah. and if it's just the soundtrack to an activity, as you say, like this little mini movie of your life, then actually you're not possibly investing the same amount of concentration into it. So I think it might have changed the way music was then made because people did not have the time to dedicate to, you know, fully understanding really intense and complicated music. Would that be right? I think so. I mean, there are a load of records that came out in 1967 that only worked in the end because people had the time to sit down and really and really kind of tackle them. Well, look, and also, back in those days, there wasn't the entertainment... There weren't the entertainment options that there subsequently came to be. You know, the, there wasn't much on telly. You know, there was no time-shifting telly. You know, there was no VHS or anything like that. And so, you know, the LP record was 
for kind of people who were long-haired and <laughs> and so on in the 70s it was it was the primary means of entertainment absolutely everything else took second place and then you know moving into the 80s and the 90s that's less and less the case because you start getting computer games you start getting multi-channel television you start getting you know dvd and all, and all these kind of things and it's just it's it's now and until we are where we are now which is we have an unlimited amount of stuff that we have access to but probably slightly less time or we feel we've got slightly less time or less inclination to devote that time to listening to a record unless you're taking the unless situation you're in lockdown, we're in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're in exactly. lockdown. Well, so you've know, got all the time in the world to go listen to these all things. the time oh, in the world so you can, you can go ahead and listen to dark side of the moon or sade's diamond life or or whatever you want i've been listening i tell you what i've been listening to this morning before we started and being again absolutely enchanted by is Gene Clark's No Other, Gene Clark record made That's in 1974. It's a oh. really good record. You know, and, there's and a documentary that... about that, by oh, which I think Sid Griffin appears in. It's a whole documentary about the making of No Other. Half oh, an really? hour long, shared on BBC not long ago. I could not recommend it more highly. It's amazing. All, all oh, about really? going out to the cabin in the, uh, on, the, on the West Coast to try and write that record and trying to get the right band together and trying to get the commercial sound they wanted. And actually, I don't think it sold very well. Whereas that... Actually, the track, I mean, A, it's a very good record, but B, the track No Other itself is phenomenal, I think. Absolutely beautiful. I, what do you think? I've got the cover in, co- cover in front of me. Can I offer my unpaid um, consultancy to yeah, the, the, the ghost of Gene Clark to tell him why it didn't sell? Because it had on the back of it a picture of him dragged up like a member of the suite. That's do you remember right. this? He's wearing kind of mad... Mad flares. Like, He's wearing flares, makeup. Enormous flares and makeup. Why? Why did he and do that? And the people who like that kind of record didn't like that kind of image. Anybody could have told him that, you know, because you looked at that record from the outside, you thought, oh my God, Gene Clark's made a, made a glam rock record. Not the case at all. Anyway, the thing that's driven me to it, which I must just m- mention, is I've been looking at, we were talking about lockdown favourites, you know, that various people have various musicians have been posting interesting stuff on, on YouTube that they've been doing during their solitude. The great Leland Sklar, Lee Sklar as he's called, the, the distinctively bearded uh, bass maestro of a million records. Oh, from, yeah, he looks like James, Leonardo uh, da Vinci, doesn't he? He's absolutely extraordinary. And he's, he's posting pretty much every day, uh, you know, tunes that he, generally stuff that he played bass on. And then playing the bass along with them to illustrate how he did it. And as I've said millions of times in this podcast, I'm no, no musician, but I found that really calming and very beautiful yeah, to watch. Yes. And, and he I've was most those. recently talking about talking about no other, and um, it's just the prosaic details. He says we recorded this at Village Recorders. He said, he said it's great studio, great studio, but it's the kind of place that. If you go very early in the morning, you can get there in 35 minutes. If you go when the traffic starts, it takes two hours either way. <laughs> you thought, that's bad. That would really colour your view of the job, it would. wouldn't it? You know, if you're a bass player or whatever, you think, I've got to spend four hours in traffic just to be in a studio in Los Angeles. I think uh, yet another reason why we're probably going to see more remote recordings post. Uh, it's all going to be done remote, I'm sure it is. It's this particular unpleasant. But it's fantastic. Hey, he did all. 
He was on lots of Jackson Brown records, wasn't he? Carol King records. I've seen a bit of that. As you say, it's very calming. There's something absolutely wonderful about seeing musicians completely transported by the music yes. that they played on. And, and yeah. There's something very, very comforting about that, actually. It is. When he when, On the No Other, he doesn't even play along with it. He just plays it. He talks about it. He plays it. And then he points in the, in the air whenever his bass part comes in. And so, and so your, your attention is drawn to all the different basses he played on one that particular track, which you wouldn't have realised any other way. You know? So he kind of does that thing like a fan might do. Was, you know, somebody who had a couple of drinks and played their favourite record, you know what I mean? They were kind of conducting the air, their favourite yeah, bits. Yeah. He does that with a record he actually played on. It's very sweet to see. So we'll, we'll, post, the, uh, we'll the, post the link. The other lockdown... That. The other lockdown thing that's happening a lot, I think, at the moment is, is, is people with their own kids. We've obviously we talked about the um, uh, the wonderful uh, John Fogerty one, but I mean, there's a there's a new one now which is doing the rounds, which is uh, which is Kurt Smith of uh, of Tears for Fears and his daughter Diva, and uh, doing a version of Mad World, and uh, it's just actually really, really, really good. But I mean, it's a classic thing, I think, as people you're grounded with your dad, you're grounded with your parents, you're locked in the house with them. You might as well get involved in their uh, in their promotional performances. And yeah, uh, yeah. and also gives people a chance to see the wonderful cedar beamed studios of these fabulous houses in Los Angeles that people occupy. But that's worth seeing. It's good. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. So we heard the sad news of the death of Astrid Kirscher, who played a very important role in the story of the Beatles. Mark, you're our Astrid Kirscher correspondent. You interviewed her, didn't you? I, I interviewed her when I was at Mojo. Yeah, she was fantastic and incredibly modest about the um, about the influence she she had on the band, which I think was enormous actually. And all these obituaries, I've read lots of obituaries about it, and they've all really pointed out all the extraordinary uh, the extraordinary effect she had on them. But she's an amazing story. I mean, she was um, uh, living in, in in Hamburg. She was from quite a posh family. She had her own flat, which the Beatles were... They'd never met anybody this well-off, this exotic, yeah. this foreign, you know. They, she had her own flat, which was painted black with silver foil on the walls and a tree branch suspended from the roof. She oh, had wow. all her existential books and her, her art and her clothes and her fashion, you know. And she was going out with Klaus Vormann. And Klaus Vormann and she had had a row. Klaus Vormann had gone out in a bad mood to get away from her, gone down the Reaper Barn and gone to what I guess would have been would have been the top ten club or the, or the, or the card seller and, uh, and seen the Beatles and come, come back and said, look, I've just seen this absolutely incredible band. You must come and see them. Two days later, she went down there, completely fell in love with them, particularly fell in love with Stu Sutcliffe, the bass player who she went out with. And, um, you know, as a lot of these um, these uh, obits have made clear, you know, it had an amazing effect on them. They'd never met anybody like her. You know, she was so different from, from the world of Liverpool. You know, it, she turned them on to all sorts of art and literature and painting. She gave Stuart the famous Beatles haircut, which George really liked and wanted to wanted one too. And John and Paul eventually got one in Paris. So she completely changed the look. And she, she, she took those early photographs of them and they're out there. Do you remember in the fairground and the letters, mm, you know? Mm. And there's one really telling story, I thought, in one of the obits, which just sums up this kind of incredible collision of cultures, which is that Stuart Sutcliffe's mum absolutely detested her, referred to her as the high-class whore. And she oh. went over, I didn't know this, she went over once to Liverpool to meet her, knowing that Stu's mum really didn't didn't like her, you know. 
And her peace offering that she handed her when she arrived was an orchid. So you can imagine how that would have gone down. There is no more art school or manoeuvre than giving somebody a kind of an orchid, mm. you know. And you could see why Stuart's mum would have taken a guessly. You know, she was she was she was rich. She was from a posh background. Well, she, she was German. Her son's head with it's German and not well, long the after she, the war. Yeah, exactly. She filled her son's head with all this preposterous stuff, taking him away from her to live in a, another uh, country, and. She was a German, as you say. This was 15 years after the Germans had only just stopped bombing Liverpool. So, I mean, it's a fascinating story, I think. And uh, and she was a big part you, of it. It was very touching. The, the, the two, thing, two things that almost strike me about her. Was that, am I correct in saying her, her family, her parents, to give you an idea of how upper middle class they were, didn't they have a maid? They did. I think they had a maid. Now, I can't imagine anything more calculated to stagger and impress the young members of the Beatles coming from Liverpool to go to somebody's house, which was... And you, know, I, and, and you must remember those... Everybody's had those experiences early in life where... And I'm going to sound like something out of Anthony Powell here, where you suddenly find yourself in a house where people are considerably richer than you are. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a Harry, Harry Enfield line, isn't it? I, you know, yeah. I can remember these. I go, when, I look back at, I, when I look back on my life, I can think, no, suddenly I was amongst people who were richer or posher or whatever. You know what I mean? And you can remember that. And the members of the Beatles were immensely sensitive to this kind of thing. And to go into some really... house where, where they rang for tea or coffee, and a maid appeared. You can just imagine John Lennon and Paul McCartney looking at each other. Thinking, My God, there Completely. is a whole world there. <laughs> but there's part of you that thinks, you know, in retrospect, that you know they might have been a bit resentful of this kind of thing. You know, that, you know, there they are, these working class Liverpool guys. They might have just thought, these, who are these posh people? But not remotely. I mean, it was a lot of it. No, was they were impressed. This is. I'm impressed. impressed. I want some of this. Yeah, I want absolutely. some of this. You know, this is and the part other of the, thing part I was going to drive to make thing... a bit more money. The other thing I was going to say is that, and uh, this is almost an idea for a book, <laughs> that if you look at the history of every band, every big band, there's usually some person in their life who suddenly saw them in a way they didn't see themselves. And she was the person who did that with the Beatles, that she Completely. saw this kind of arty, edgy, existential, cool thing. The Beatles never thought of themselves like that at all. You know, they were they were kind of greasers. They were rockers. They got up on stage and and got the crowd going. She saw this <coughs> moody group within the other group, and she was the first person to do it. That's so true. And because if you think about it, at the time, you know, they were just playing. Just they were just rock and roll kind of Ted's, weren't they? They were greasers. They were <coughs> just rambunctious, uh, you know, four-hour sets of rock and roll. John Lennon yeah. coming on stage with a toilet uh, seat. Toilet his deck, you know. Yeah, yeah she wouldn't have liked that. She wouldn't have liked that. They were eating kind of meat pies on stage, smoking, you know, uh, drinking yeah. beer, you know. And the, the idea, as you said, that she saw that. A lot of that, I think, was to do with, particularly with Stuart, but just to do with the way they looked. But she thought they were okay. absolutely I'm going to go further. I'm going to go further. I'm going to go further. And then we'll cool. leave it. She invented indie. Oh, okay. Okay. She did. Oh, she sees good. that. Well, what... She sees that. She sees that kind of starving artist <laughs> side of them. You know what I mean? How cool this bunch of guys. 
pale and interesting. They're suffering for their art. And you may not think it's art, but it is art. That's the indie pose to this day. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> because actually, those pictures she took at the at the fairground, you know, and before then, they were just... Every picture of the Beatles, they'd be pissed and they'd be full of prellies <laughs> and they'd be, you know, mugging at the <laughs> camera, you know. And, and there they are. Nobody's smiling. They're all looking... They're and absolutely... It's incredibly staged and they're all set for different... Uh, you know, distances from the camera. It's very composed, and it's it, they're just fabulously. Cool. So there you are. She invented indie. She invented so, indie. That's. Good. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on to our, our bulging post bag, because there are a couple of things here that I think are worthy of. Uh, well, they're all worth. We read everything anybody sends to us. Please do keep sending to us uh, stuff to us. But um, I must just point out a couple of things. Uh, further to our recent discussion of glasses in rock, the you know if you wear glasses in in a rock band, you're pretty much clearly saying to the crowd, "I'm not a sex symbol." And uh, and uh, Tony Dolan has written to say that uh, he went to see Lloyd Cole and the Commotions at Wembley Arena in 1990. He says, and a few times during the set, Lloyd Cole put on his glasses to provoke shrieks of approval from a section of the audience. He didn't wear them all through the show and was just tarting around to, dis- to, to delight some of his, I assume, sapiosexual followers. But I thought it warranted a... <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, it warranted a small asterisk next to your arg- argument. And Nigel Harrison, on the same uh, tip, as I think they say, uh, says, exception that proves the rule, and it's a good one, this, is John Sebastian and the Loving Spoonful. Would not oh, have worked okay. so well without John Sebastian's glasses. You're absolutely correct, Nigel. I completely, I completely, you know, I, I completely agree with you. The, the glasses were a what? huge part of John Sebastian's charm. They were. And why? Why would that have been the case? Because Lloyd Cole, you're absolutely right. Lloyd Cole had that kind of. Um, I'm a girl uh, who's a, a, a literature graduate, and I read a lot of Penguin modern classics, and I've rather fallen for Lloyd Cole. But I mean, what was it about? Um, what was it about John Sebastian's girl? I don't know. It wasn't intellectual. He looked like it was just he looked like, he looked like he looked like the teacher that the girls would get a crush on. That's yeah, what that's he always true. looked like. He just looked yeah. very very gentle. Uh, so thanks very much for that. Roy Levy also adds that Eric Clapton did manage to make spectacles look coolish on the cover of uh, Eric Clapton Unplugged, which is fair. He fair did, point, fair point. We were talking but about... Again, you that was talk- a very clever ruse on his part but of trying to slightly reinvent himself, wasn't he? Yeah, okay, You know, it was enough. kind of like... it was kind of like, I was this kind of electric, uh, you know, godhead. Love God. And now I'm a sl- <laughs> yeah, now I'm a slightly more reserved, uh, thinking yeah. and uh, an intellectual, um, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, acoustic guitar versions of my uh, old songs. So it was, it was a bit I, of a position. I must add also John Hazelwood, not John Hazelwood, who we used to work with. Uh, John Hazelwood, as uh, further to your thing about the Stranglers with on-stage strippers, um, told us that he, about a story about going to see going to uh, a festival in Tipperary in the Republic of Ireland at the Fela, and he came all the way hitchhiked all the way from Manchester for three wet and cold days in a hurling field for a lineup that demonstrates why Britpop had to happen. In excess, Iggy Pop, the Levelers, the Sultans of Ping FC, the Christians, the Shaman, Utah Saints, Stiff Little Fingers, That Petrol Emotion, Aztec Camera, Madness, and the Red Dress Warbler himself, 
Chris de Berg. And so <laughs> the last the last night he had madness followed by Chris de Berg. And he said somebody had printed thousands of A4 bits of paper that said fuck off Chris de Berg. And the stage was being rained down with paper airplanes and the obligatory bottles of yellow liquid. The Madness Boys did their thing, and now it was time for Christopher to sing to 20,000 pissed skinheads. I don't recall being able to hear the heavily eyebrowed crooner sing a great deal due to the booing, except for one song. Then, inexplicably, in front of a 20,000 strong audience of Catholics, he chose to bring on a stripper for his 1975 classic, Patricia the Stripper. The sight of the singer of the MRR classic Laban Rayleigh Red singing alongside a stripper quickly shut up our skinhead friends and they stood there silently enjoying Christopher. Yeah. (laughs) They put their bottles of warm wee down and uh, folded their arms and sort of nodded along appreciatively. That is absolutely incredible. Wasn't that, isn't that a strange British tradition? Isn't it, you know, the, the terrible group, that uh, the singer that everyone hates, you know, uh, on stage. I can remember this at Reading, 1979. And I think also, I'm not sure if it wasn't Christa Berg then, getting pelted with bottles of warm wee. What a horrible thing. <laughs> You're listening to The Word Podcast. It's a lockdown lock-in. OK, if you want to know everything we're up to, and we're up to quite a lot, go to wyelondon.com and you find details of how you can keep abreast of the, the word in your attic uh, screenings and, uh, and further podcasts and stuff we might be doing with old podcasts. And also, you can join the growing army of people who are taking part in our weekly online quiz, which we call Can You Tell Who It Is Yet?, we're actually moving it. We have been running this at five o'clock on Friday on Saturdays, five o'clock Saturday afternoon. We're actually moving it from this week. It'll take place at six o'clock on Friday. It's a bit of a the weekend starts here. Moment. Literally, the weekend and, starts here. That's it. And so, and so you'll get you'll get a link sent to you with a Zoom link as to as to how you can take part in that. And we very much like you to take part in it and join the growing army of our Patreon supporters. And I think we've got uh, additions to this army, Mark. We uh, have got a few. In the last few days. Go on. Let me just read out their names. We have the, the magnanimous Craig Tigwell, and we have the inimitable Michael Edmondson, uh, and the sensational Pete Hayne, the peerless Paul Cook, the splendid Simon O'Hagan, the freewheeling... The peerless Paul Cook, I like that. That's very good. Yeah, peerless Paul Cook. The freewheeling Rebecca Sudlow, the bountiful David Newton, and bless his cotton socks, Steve Wilkins. So thank you very much to all of those. That's brilliant of them. Much appreciated. I think I, I, this just in, actually, just come in as we're actually recording this. Clive Morris's name is added to, the, to that, uh, that role of honour. Thank you very much for your support. All the best. We'll see you on down the line. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.